the school culture now is not just LGBTQ inclusive or trans inclusive. It's celebrating these alternate identities, but also imposing norms so that every child begins to understand what's expected of them, that they need to use the pronouns, that they need to kind of shrug and pretend it's no big deal when a person of the opposite sex is identifying their way into their bathroom and their locker room. What is gender ideology? Is it really being promoted to kids in the classroom? Are schools adopting it as part of their school culture? How can concerned parents, grandparents, clergy, and other Catholic leaders push back against the creep of gender ideology in schools? We'll be discussing these important questions on this episode of Religious Freedom Matters. I'm your host, Andrea Pachati Bayer, Director of the Conscience Project. My co-host, Joan Desmond, is Senior Editor at the National Catholic Register. Our guests, Mary Hassan and Aileen Blakowski, have insight you won't want to miss. Our first guest is Mary Rice Hassan. Mary directs the Catholic Women's Forum and is the co-founder of the Person and Identity Project, an initiative to assist the Catholic Church in promoting the Catholic vision of the human person and responding to the challenges of gender ideology. Mary also co-authored with her sister, Teresa Farnan, one of my current favorite books, Get Out Now, Why You Should Pull Your Child from Public School Before It's Too Late. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you. Mary, so good to have you on the show. Before schools began encouraging students to reassess their gender identity, parents were often kept in the dark about the actual content of sex ed programs and the work of school-based health clinics providing contraceptives and abortion referrals. What's going on? Well, this is an extension, really, from that earlier work that was done by advocates of sex ed, the Planned Parenthood industry, and all their affiliates and, and allied organizations that really have focused in on the fact that if you can get to kids early, shape their attitudes, provide them with a a way to access contraception or now gender hormones, you've you've got kids so that by the time they're adults, they are full-fledged embracing this different ideology, this different understanding of the person. Mary, when my oldest children were kindergartners. They were in public school here in in Virginia. And I remember checking the box, opting them out of sex ed. And and they were thrilled because that meant that they could spend an entire hour in the library. My kids are nerds. And um, (laughs) that's, that's not an option anymore. You can't opt out of this movement. Is that correct? And, and what is it looking like for kids in the classroom especially with regard to gender ideology. You're exactly right, Andrea. The One of the problems here is that because parents fought so long and hard to get things like opt-out provisions for sex ed, even though very few parents actually use them, in many laws, you have that possibility. I think it's sort of conditioned us to believing that we can somehow do that and protect our kids from being exposed to gender ideology. But it's just not true because gender ideology comes in in a lot of ways, one of which is curricula, but but that's not even the typical or the most damaging way. Really, it's coming in through the culture of the schools and you can't opt out of school culture. And it's also coming in more informally through 
teachers who are activists, who believe in these ideologies, who are bringing in materials off of the internet, they're engaging in their own conversations with kids and and shaping their attitudes. And then, as I said, the school culture now is not just LGBTQ inclusive or trans inclusive. It's celebrating these alternate identities, but also imposing norms so that every child begins to understand what's expected of them, that they need to use the pronouns, that they need to kind of shrug and pretend it's no big deal when a person of the opposite sex is identifying their way into their bathroom and their locker room. So it's conditioning kids to really think of themselves differently, to look at their peers differently, to to really embrace this false anthropology, this idea that who we are has nothing to do with our bodies, but everything to do with our feelings and how we self-identify. Well, and that's the crux of the question, right? Is gender ideology is a fluid notion of the self? What's your shorthand definition for all of us listening? What are we talking about when we say gender ideology? So gender ideology believes that who you are, your identity, is the choice of the individual. In other words, I self-define who I am according to my feelings and that the body does not have significance. So it's really identity is determined by me. My body, my choice, really, it's, it's kind of the same slogan that we've gotten so accustomed to hearing in the abortion context, but it's applied in a larger sense to everything about us that I get to define who I am. And this idea of, quote, gender identity is really a fancy word that means nothing more than self-perception about how well you fit into stereotypical roles or social expectations that typically were linked with sex. But now it's, it's this idea that I decide who I am, my body doesn't matter, and I can define any identity at all, not just male, female, boy, girl, both neither non-binary, but but anything. And so that's why we're seeing this proliferation of identities that's completely subjective. And, and here's the other thing I, I would leave with your listeners, Andrea and Joan, is that you can't know what someone's, quote, gender identity or their self-perception is except by asking. So there's nothing objective. It has to be declared. You can't assume, you can't look at someone and say, I know who that is. That's a male. That's a female. It's completely subjective. So it's really unworkable as a matter of law, but it it also is unworkable in personal relationships. And that's why there's such a fuss about misgendering and using the wrong pronouns and, and all of these things, because we can't really know who someone is unless they have self-defined and then declared it publicly. I think one thing that I've seen is this idea that it's an act of courage to declare your gender identity as being potentially different from your biological sex. And I remember a friend of mine had picked up her second grade grandchild. This is out here in California where this has been well advanced starting in kindergarten. And her granddaughter was actually quite upset completely confused about the show-and-tell presentation. Again, part of larger school culture of a second-grade schoolmate whose father had come in to help her facilitate her new gender presentation story. So how many second-graders even understand what this is all about? So my friend picks up her grandchild, and the child is sort of upset, like gets tearful and is saying, I don't want to be a boy, but thinks it might be beyond their control. They don't understand 
what's going on there. So there's kind of anxiety brought in. But to me, the incident also shows you have a parent who embraces this. And again, this whole kind of performative culture, celebrating this as an act of courage that should be emulated. And if you disagree, you're potentially creating a discriminatory environment that could, you know, that could injure them psychologically, emotionally. So there's that issue. I would also just note, for example, you were talking earlier about all the different ways gender ideology comes into the classroom. And I think what I noticed is there were opt-out opportunities for parents for sex ed, but what they did with gender ideology is to say some of this has to do with discrimination and you can't opt out for discrimination. So that has made it tougher for parents who believe there are other messages being included beyond just being respectful of people. There's no opt out for that. And it's become much more sensitive as a result. Yeah, you're exactly right. And the idea that a child is somehow brave by expressing this is not really the the norm. The new norm is that it's exciting, it's cool, it's kind of expected. So that's one reason why we are seeing a dramatic rise in the number of children who are identifying as LGBT, but then particularly identifying as transgender. So historically, there has always been a small percentage of people, usually very young children, mostly boys or older adult males who were confused about identity. And typically until about 12, 15 years ago, that was 0.002 percent of the population, tiny, tiny fraction of people. And among those young children who experience that, the vast majority of them would resolve that confusion by the time they hit puberty. But what we're seeing now in adolescence is this dramatic rise. So there was a a study that was done this past spring among Pittsburgh high school students, a large study. And what they found was nearly 10% of that high school population were identifying as transgender or, or, quote, gender diverse. So that is an astronomical increase that doesn't happen in nature, so to speak. It's not, it's driven by something else. It's driven by a culture that says, this is the way to be. Throw off those shackles, those old expectations that you're born male or female and that's, that is who you are. And rather embrace this exciting exploratory path of figuring out who you are based on your feelings or your inclinations and declare your identity. And that's what's being celebrated. Um, but Joan, I was struck by your example with your friend's grandchild and the anxiety that this produces. And I was talking to a a psychologist recently who was saying, you know, one of the problems here is you're introducing to young children the idea that they have a choice about something that should be certain. And when children feel that burden that they have to make a decision about something that really is not in their control, they can't change being male or female your your sex is determined in, and it's it's imprinted in every cell of your body you cannot change it but the culture now is is holding out in front of our children this mirage that they can somehow be someone different by identifying and then changing their hair their body their name uh, and all of these things but that's the 
amount of anxiety that is accompanying this. And then as kids have to monitor how their expression is, whether they're being perceived according to their their chosen identity, it becomes really obsessive and and, um, all-encompassing for these kids. It's it's tremendously disturbing to see what's happening. Mary, can I say one, just one quick point about this too, is the idea of planning, you know, as you think about your life, as you envision your life, imagine if someone says, well, you may not end up growing up as a woman, or you may not end up growing up as a man. Mm -hmm. So that stalls a lot of the process of planning Mm -hmm. and building a future. That's something I just read recently, I thought was also Mm -hmm. a very interesting point. Even among what are called gender affirming clinicians, they too are talking about exactly what you just mentioned, Joan, that you see among kids who are identifying as transgender or gender diverse or non-binary, sort of a stunted development in other areas of their lives because so much energy is being poured into trying to figure out, manipulate and and communicate this, this inner sense of who they are in contradiction to reality, that it takes up all of that emotional and cognitive energy that really should be going, and even social energy that should be going towards a, a more well-rounded development in all sorts of areas. So it's handicapping is really what it is. Mary, you make an interesting point. Early on, you were talking about the rise in the number of children that are indicating a gender that's not consistent with their biological sex, a gender identity not consistent with their biological sex. And I kept thinking that's contagion in the notion of kind of psychology. And it's ironic that at a time where we're so concerned about contagious uh, viruses and things like that, that we've got a psychological contagion going on that really is undercutting the confidence that a child will have as they enter into puberty and just to be able to enjoy a fruitful childhood. I also was thinking about my now 10-year-old last year. She was uh, asking me what I was listening to, and I was actually listening to your testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee on the Equality Act. And I explained a little bit, uh, you know, consistent with what she was able to grasp, the notion of the Equality Act. And she looked at me, point blank, said, you mean they're going to take away girls' bathrooms? Mm. And it was, and really there was a sense of anxiety and nervousness. And this is, you know, she's my sporty spice, Veronica, and she is not going to let anyone push her around but there was a part <laughs> there was a part of her intimacy and her privacy mm-hmm. that she was very guarded and appropriately guarded for and it really um struck home just recently i i noticed that chicago public schools have announced a move to make all of their bathrooms gender inclusive i want to i want to play for everyone a little clip from chicago public school officials on this new policy and get your reaction, Mary. Sure. One change that will be implemented this school year relates to our school bathrooms. In compliance with new federal guidelines, all CPS students and staff will have fair and equitable access to bathroom facilities that align with their gender identity. We will be providing all schools with updated signage that makes our bathrooms more inclusive. It will identify the fixtures available in each restroom and make it clear that all restrooms are open for use by anyone who feels comfortable. Staff will continue to have staff-only restrooms available to them. 
This is an incredibly important step to increase gender equity for all, which is why we will be requiring all schools to post this signage by December 1st of this school year. Our district's Office of Student Protections in Title IX is also working on a long-term plan to create more permanent signage for our bathrooms. Yeah, wow. <laughs> you know, it, I, I'm familiar with what's going on there in Chicago and and. One of the things for people to understand is that when they talk about making their bathrooms inclusive, what they mean specifically is is that access to bathrooms is determined according to your gender identity. In other words, how you feel, how you perceive yourself, that's your ticket into particular bathrooms if they're sex segregated. But the schools are moving to say every bathroom is going to be open to anyone, regardless of your gender identity. In other words, just this notion of inclusivity that in reality denies reality. So you're, you're, what you're, I'm particularly troubled by what this says to girls. It says, override your instincts of feeling uncomfortable when there's a male in your bathroom. Override that sense, that normal desire for privacy when you want to take care of menstrual hygiene or or things like that override those feelings of desiring privacy and because otherwise that's a sign that what you're bigoted you're you're not inclusive you're not welcoming when the reality is males and females are different it's been a sign of progress in our culture that uh, and in cultures generally when when we adapt to women's needs for privacy and safety. So the idea that you can suddenly allow males to self-identify and be allowed into or access to what used to be female-only spaces is a recipe for disaster. We know there's, just like there was recently in Loudoun County, Virginia, we know there are going to be sexual assaults. We know that there are going to be problems and and we're already hearing from families who say that their daughters don't want to go to the bathroom. They don't in the school because they don't know who's going to be in there. So this is in spite of all the reassuring talk of that administrator, this is really a recipe for disaster, but it silences women and girls and tells them your feelings don't matter. Mary, the church hasn't been silent on the issue of gender ideology and recently The Arlington, Virginia Bishop Michael Burbage wrote a pastoral letter on the issue. And in 2019, the Vatican's Congregation for Catholic Education did so as well. Mary, what's your take on these documents? I think they're both fantastic documents. I love the pastoral approach of Bishop Burbage. And his point is that we have to understand who we are in the light of Christ in our bodies as a gift from God. But they were all broken in different ways. And and there's no sin. There's no condemnation if someone is experiencing confusion or or uh, difficulty in, in sorting these feelings out. But there's a truth. And so true charity doesn't leave someone in their confusion. You know, it walks alongside, but it leads them into the light and towards the truth. And and I think his um, his letter had a real message of hope that, you know, there there is possibility of resolving these feelings. There is support and love and compassion within the church. 
But that cannot be separated from the truth because the God who is love is the God of truth and he has a plan for our lives. And so we may need the help of others, but we can sort that out and and find it and walk along that path in love and in truth. I found a lot of clarity in the documents. I think it's really important before you do anything else as a concerned parent to read them. They help give you the language, the framework, the, the argument, the discussion point, to, to put your best foot forward. And I think they're enormously helpful for that reason alone. So a couple of things, Joan. I, I agree that uh, parents need to be aware of what's happening. Parents have got to discuss this, to raise it, to give their kids proactive guidance. But then parents need to be on guard. So we need to be more restrictive and protective of our kids in terms of social media and what they're tuning into and and put some restrictions on that and be tuned in to what's happening in their friend groups. And even some of the, the psychologists who support this idea of a person coming out trans and, and transitioning and, and all of that are now admitting that there is an element of social contagion. What we're seeing is this is happening in friend groups, particularly among adolescent girls. So when the gender docs start admitting that, then you know there's something going on. And and there truly is. There's a a great book by Abigail Schreier called Irreversible Damage that talks about this phenomenon among particularly adolescent girls. But there's just a growing understanding that as this is presented by schools and the culture as something possible that you can change your identity, but that more and more kids are going to be pulled into that because they're looking for meaning. They're looking for a way to understand who they are and they want to belong. And in a culture that celebrates this, that's a a really strong lure. So parents have got to be on guard to address this proactively, to put your kids in a school that's going to work with you and see you as part of the team, not try to keep you in the dark and shut you out of these conversations. And then know who your experts are. You're the people who can support you if your kid runs into some trouble if their if their feelings get confused. Don't send them to a gender clinician. Don't send them to a, a psychotherapist who is quote gender affirming. You need to find someone who truly believes in the Christian vision of the person and the reality of biological sex, because that's the kind of support your child needs. So parents, don't be afraid to be parents and to make those hard decisions just to protect your kids. But more importantly, perhaps build your relationship with them and speak the truth over and over in different ways. And so that you can understand also what's going on with them and what additional supports they may need. I just like to say, Mary, having four of my 10 children are girls and at different stages of being a hot mess, uh, I would encourage all parents to check out your person and identity project. It's got great resources for parents, for schools, for parishes. You can check that out at their website, which is personandidentity.com. And many thanks to Mary Hassan from the Catholic Women's Forum for sharing her expertise and insight on the creep of gender ideology into our schools. Don't forget to check out Mary and her colleagues' work at the Ethics and Public Policy Center as well. Thank you so much. And the website is personandidentity.com. So we invite you to come and and explore lots of resources, downloads, toolkits. So personandidentity.com. Thanks so much, Joan and Andrea. I really appreciate it. 
Joining us next is Eileen Blakowski, a parent activist with tips for how to be effective advocates for our children and their education. Our podcast has covered what many see as a relatively new phenomenon, parent activists showing up at school board meetings to advocate for a return to in-school learning during the pandemic, while others are raising questions about transgender bathroom policies or critical race theory. Today, we'll be talking with Aileen Blakowski, a Catholic mother of six who was based in Orange, California when she stepped up to address California's controversial K through 12 sex ed curriculum. Eileen, tell us why you got involved. Well, we know that we're called to bring our faith into the public discourse. And when I began to see these egregious sex ed policies and laws and education changing, and it was affecting the, all the kids in the entire state, I realized, you know, this is going to affect my kids. And I couldn't just stand by and not step up when I knew that the dignity of kids all over the state were going to be assaulted with this really graphic sex ed curriculum that was going to push things like abortion and gender exploration. So you helped start the group Informed Parents of California to expose what you said was the shocking truth about the sexualization and indoctrination of our children in California public schools. What did the curriculum have to say about issues like sexual consent, gender fluidity, and transgender rights? Uh, well, the curriculum is very, very troubling. Um, the discussions, uh, the teaching discussions in the curriculum uh, would tell children, and, and this curriculum could be taught as young as kindergarten, that, for example, consent um, was something that was to be gained. It was never a conversation about saying no to improper touch or maybe that you're a minor and that this is not a good time for you to have sex. Um, instead, it was completely focused on how to get consent and it was teaching the strategies of how to consent to sex to children. And in terms of like gender identity and exploration, it was just a given that everyone has to explore their gender, that whatever you were identified as when you were born doesn't really matter. You have to go on an exploratory journey to find out who you really are. And I knew these things were extremely destructive um, to the psyche and the hearts and souls of our kids. And, um, you know, it, it just, it, it was putting our children in a position where, and it puts all the kids in a position where they're, isolated if they hold, you know, a Judeo-Christian value on any, in any of these things. As parents of school-aged children, I really do have confidence in the teachers. I want to have confidence in the teachers, but when they're failing and when they're doing so in a way that's oftentimes deceptive, they're not informing parents of what's going on, that really cuts against the notion of parents as primary educators and the authority of parents over their children. Is that a big part of your understanding of the importance of parent activism over these issues, kind of the Catholic teaching about the role of parents? It absolutely is. And I think that in this day and age, Catholic parents need to be more vigilant than ever, because we do know that the church teaches that parents are the primary educators of their children. And I don't think many parents recognize how much shaping and forming is going on in these lessons. So it's even that much more incumbent upon us to 
to take advantage of this time and really own our faith, um, you know, learn, continue to read, watch podcasts and talk to our kids. It's, you know, it's, we're living in a time when we can't wait for the church to do something. We need to be the church that does something. And parents need to take on that role in a very hands-on way and be really just walking closely with our kids. If we can't remove them from public schools in a climate like this, then we need to take extra precautions to ensure that we are fulfilling that role and that we're working extra diligently at it. Uh, parents, especially Catholic parents, need to step up and um, take on that role in a new and serious way today. Aileen, tell us a little bit about what gives you hope. What are some projects and initiatives that you see offering uh, greater options for families? I just heard about a fabulous initiative out of Virginia where um, a priest in a, in a Catholic school, at a Catholic parish, offered to pay families $2,000 to move their children out of public schools and into Catholic schools. And I thought that was brilliant. You know, I mean, this is the mission of the church, right? The evangelization of the future of the church. And what better way to do that than to remove kids from an indoctrinating environment and, and bring them into Catholic schools. So this was fabulous. I shared it with another parish priest in, in San Diego. Um, he said, sounds like a fabulous idea. Thank you for sharing. Well, and I can't agree more. I know, I know that priest, he's in my own diocese here and in an area in which a lot of the public school kids just weren't being served by their local school system. So it was wonderful. And it's a great reminder that our Catholic schools do offer kind of that other alternative and is is becoming more and more apparent, one that's grounded in f not only faith, but grounded in truth about the human person. So good for Father DeSells mm -hmm. for doing that. And we hope that more clergy and more pastors take advantage of that, whether they're within our Catholic tradition or other faith traditions as well. That's an encouraging sign for all families. The organization is Protect Our Kids. It's based out of California, and they're having a, an increasing a national reach in informing parents about the indoctrinating issues in the public schools. And I encourage your listeners to, to go check that out so they can learn more. Absolutely. I'll check it out too. Thank you so much for that recommendation. And thanks again, Eileen, for joining us. Thanks to Eileen Blakowski for joining us to discuss the vital and successful role of parents in pursuing the truth in their children's education. It's been a wonderful discussion, and I'm hoping it's inspiring all of our listeners to see what more that they can do to get involved in their community and their schools. Joan and I want to thank you for listening to another episode of Religious Freedom Matters. I'm Andrea Pachati bayer Director of the Conscience Project. You can read more about our work at conscience-project.org. You can also find all episodes of Religious Freedom Matters there and at the National Catholic Register website, that's ncregister.com. Write to us with your comments or send an audio recording to religiousfreedommatters at gmail.com to let us know what you think of this episode and why you agree that religious freedom matters.